Revealing truth by exposing lies. What does that mean? That means that on this podcast, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects, but we have an intention in mind, and that is to move beyond political ideology, religious dogmatism, tribalism, and nationalism, even beyond personal opinion, beyond false authorities that so many people don't even question, and taking you, the audience, someplace that you may not be quite ready to go, to that place beyond us and them. This is Two Dimwits. We are two political idiots who want to discuss politics and religion. Dwight Hignite on the left, Mark Matthews on the right. Thank you for joining us as we find common ground between the far left and the far right. Well, we're sitting here in the car outside the coffee shop because the uh, the background noise, there's music playing, there's people coming and going, and the, the, the space is just not conducive to sound quality. And, right. you know, part of it is that... Uh, you know, my uh, my co-host for the show hasn't acquired his radio voice. <laughs> is <laughs> I am anything but an entertainer. Let me tell you that. You have to project volume. <laughs> you you yeah. got to get your. So we're sitting here in the car, and there's two kids just rolling down the street uh, on their skateboards. Mm-hmm. And uh, is skateboarding illegal around here? Is it or? Well, they have a skateboard park. Here in in Siloam now. Do you remember in high school they used to harass kids that were skateboarding? Oh yeah, yeah, it was illegal and and uh, yeah, kids could get in trouble for that. Yeah, Absolutely. didn't the, I remember a conversation where someone was talking about how the cops were always harassing the the skateboarders and mm-hmm. that was like a thing. Is it still a thing? Well, I don't think that the cops harass the skateboarders for skateboarding, but the culture of skateboarding is known for, you know, a little bit of cannabis here and there, and I think the cops keep ah, an eye out for the kids for that. Right, that's probably it, you know. Um, because I've seen this in some movies where, like, uh, skateboarder, skateboarders, um, they kind of, they're kind of paranoid against society because they, 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 they feel like it's us versus them, you know, kind of mentality of that they don't trust society, they don't trust the older people, and they're kind of into this whole counterculture thing. Welcome to my world. I, you I deal with this I, all the time. I deal with this every day, so it, five it, days a week, man. So it's not, if it's not uh, skateboarding anymore, what is the thing? Video games now, or? Well, video games are uh, a lot more mainstream, um, the thing now for the counterculture is what they call emo. And uh, these kids, whether they are or, they, they, or they're just, you know, trying to fit in, uh, it's the idea that um, their parents have let them down, society has let them down, they're depressed, they're highly emotional, um, they're very negative... Um, some of them, the real article, unfortunately, um, engaged in self-harm, uh, a lot of drugs, a lot of anger, um, dealing with suicide. Uh, the, this is the new, this is the new counterculture, uh, the, the emo kids. When Mark and I were in high school, it was the stoners and, you know, kind of pretty cut and dried, or at least it felt that way. Well, it didn't seem like things had changed all that much from the 50s. Well, 
you know, in, you're in terms of counterculture. Winger, yeah, I wanted to be a hippie in uh, in the in the '80s, and I was really sad that I was born 20, 20 years too late. <laughs> uh, the most ironic thing that I hear now is um, uh, kids that wish they were born or wish they were teenagers in the '80s. Really, and I'm laughing and I'm going, "Why?" You know, it's yeah. uh, but. So explain this emo thing to me. I don't get it. Sure. What, what is it? Well, what does the emo stand for? Is I thought that was like a some kind of a Teletubby. No, <laughs> no. Emo stands. I, I guess you could say it stands for emotional. Uh, there's a whole um, genre of music uh, that uh, is called emo music. Really. And then, yeah, it's usually pretty, you know, it's what uh, what Mark and I would call heavy metal on steroids. Um, death metal kind uh, of thing? It, kind of death metal, but more mixed with uh, pop. Hmm. And uh, then what they also have now is if you take emo and then you mix it with really heavy metal and screaming, where the, the singer doesn't sing, he doesn't even try to sing, he just screams <laughs> at the top of his lungs, yeah. that's called screamo. Really? Yeah. So and it's like a rage music. It is. It's rage. It's rage against your family. It's rage against society. And in some cases, it's rage against yourself. Um, some now, of the main topics are usually suicide mm -hmm. and uh, cutting. Uh, now, is it healthy? Do you see this as oh, being... Oh, no. By no means is it healthy. You don't think it's healthy to vent? Depends on who is doing the venting. It's just like anything else. You know, I can remember when we were kids back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you had people, you know, saying that ACDC was devil music and satanic and this kind of stuff. And and most of us, we just, you know, we just drank a beer and, and smoked a joint, listened to ACDC and had a good time. Whereas there was a few out there that really, you know, took Hell's Bells and Highway to Hell seriously and kind of went over the top. Just for the record, I wasn't one of them smoking joint. Okay? I just want to make that clear. Okay. All okay. right. All right. I'm glad you did that. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> you say that like I'm lying. I'm not lying. No, 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 no. I'm just no. trying to put, no. the, put the attention on you and not on me. Oh, okay. okay. And uh, uh. so anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but isn't it healthy to be able to, to have a primal roar and scream and yell and get the rage out? Yes, it is healthy if you are a emotionally healthy teenager. Uh -huh. If you are already dealing with suicidal thoughts, uh -huh. if you have already dealt with trauma, if you've already uh, engaged in self-harm, unfortunately some of these songs reinforce that behavior uh -huh. Uh -huh. instead of uh, you start to rebel for an outlet. Right, so there's, it closes the door, and you're, it's reveling. You're reveling in the... Uh... Yes, yes, you're reveling in your misery. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of kids will say, you know, I listen to sad music when I'm sad, and I'm like, why, you know? Uh, it, it actually intensifies well, I, that sadness. I find, now, I'm a, I'm a melancholy temperament, so mm -hmm. I need to listen to sad music sometimes when yeah. I'm sad. And that, sure. and that's, that, what that does is it fulfills, I need to sit with my sadness. I need to fully experience the sadness. Yes. I can't move on if I don't sit with it. And music yes. gives me the way to do that. I absolutely agree with you. See, here's the thing about our society. And, you know, what we're taught in Western society is that if you're not happy all the time, you're not healthy. 
And the reality of that, that is a bald-faced lie, and it makes people who are not happy all the time think that they're somehow um, mentally disabled or defective or there's something wrong with them. But in reality, sadness is a normal part of the human experience. Right. And um, what I usually, and of course this is a topic for another podcast, but uh, the Taoists have a symbol uh, called the yin-yang, and I, I bring that into my my practice on a daily basis mm-hmm. because the the teaching of the of the Tao is about balance. It's about um, paradoxes. You can't have happiness without sadness. How can you know what happiness is if you don't experience sadness? And how can you know what sadness is if you don't experience happiness? Now, now let's let's talk about the Myers Briggs uh, sure. temperament person. I said I was melancholy. Now, there's there's basically four basic temperaments. You have melancholy. Uh, now, the I can def, I can describe melancholy because I'm very familiar with it. Um, melancholy uh, would be the temperament that has that um, is also prone to being musical and artistic. But the, that's the positive side. Now, there's a downside, which is you are probably more inclined towards uh, insanity. Okay, so, so, um, well, now you're not necessarily talking about Myers Briggs. That's another one, but I'll be danged if I can remember. No, I'm getting to that because oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Myers yeah, Briggs yeah. is built on this. Yeah. Okay. So if you go back to the original source, this goes back to the Stoic and philosophers. Yeah, absolutely. And some, yes, wait, I, I remember that. So they they basically you know, these were four things: melancholy, choleric, uh, sanguine, sanguine, and phlegmatic. Phlegmatic. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Then these are uh, human body functions, like phlegmatic is phlegm in the throat. Right. Okay. I, I don't know what... It goes back to the ancient Greek belief that uh, mood and personality was controlled by bodily fluids. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, however they arrived at this, it was it, it's genius. And the Myers-Briggs personality test basically takes those four and turns it into 16. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I haven't heard it quite put that way. But with Myers-Briggs, there's... Um, there's four indicators. There's four indicators, and each one, each indicator operates on a continuum. And the first indicator is how we gather energy, uh, and that's either introvert or extrovert. The second indicator is how we gather information, and that's either sensory or intuitive. The third indicator indicator is how we make decisions, and that's either thinking or feeling. And the last indicator is how we organize our life, and that's either judging or perceiving. So when you uh, when you take this Myers Briggs typology indicator assessment, uh, it spits out uh, four letters in, like what you said, Mark, in sixteen different combinations. And uh, the first time I took it, I was like, oh yeah, sure. And then I read a description of the personality that it spit it out, that it spat out for me, and it was like someone climbed up in my head and read my mind. Yeah, it was amazing. Well, my uh, I took this test, you know, when I was freshly out of high school, and I tested as INTP, and then I mm-hmm. took it ten years later, and I tested as INTP. Then I took mm-hmm. it another, t- and I took it recently, and it's still INTP. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, what's very interesting about that is that. My po- political views have changed. My religious views have changed. My geographic location—I mean, uh, how I cope with stress—many different things in my life. I've experienced many things, and 
but the but the uh, temperament or personality type has not changed, and that's right. true for uh, for everyone. Yeah. Now, now that's very fascinating, and that information um, is very useful if we start if you really want to dig into it and understand the psychology of human beings and what makes us tick. And I'm interested in that. I know mm-hmm. you are. Oh yeah, it's my um, job. Yeah. So the thing is. Well, we were talking earlier. Um, you were saying that there's a there's a there's a positive and a negative a, a benefit, and I'm saying each one of these things has a upside and a downside. Absolutely. And human beings are very complicated, and so when you take these four temperaments and you um, then you go into the the, the the causes, which then become a yin and yang. Uh, there's there are basically four yin and yangs going on. Absolutely, here. that's exactly right. And so what you have is hadn't thought about it like that, but that's right. Yeah. So so what you have is you have you you, you encounter people. You might be in a relationship. You might be romantically involved with somebody mm-hmm. whose yin is your yang, or mm-hmm. you know, on one of these four criteria. And so mm-hmm. and that affects your communication. And mm-hmm. like you know, for example, uh, maybe your uh, perceiving and the other person is judging and mm-hmm. so the way that plays out is um, the person who's judging makes quick decisions and if that if that's your a romantic partner a female then she's going to think of you as being less of a man because you don't seem to be able to make a decision right <laughs> and she gets pissed right because she thinks you should be able to view the world she the way she does and uh, come you know come to cons- quick uh, analysis of the problem and when it comes to living together you're asking for a problem if you have a p and a j in the same house it, it does Absolutely. seem to, that's been my experience mm-hmm. so i i wish i had given my uh romantic interest a uh a myers-briggs personality test years ago but you know yeah. i because of what I know now. But the thing right. is, I guess you, you know, in some ways you just only learn through experience. You Absolutely. Know? That's the best teacher anyway. It's the only way to learn, really. I mm-hmm. mean, you know. Yeah. Um, and you have to make mistakes in order to, in order to learn, really. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a necessary part of life. Uh, you know, I think Mark and I were talking when we were not broadcasting here and, you know, my belief is that you're only stupid if you don't learn from your mistakes. And uh, I think Mark said it, you're only stupid if you don't make mistakes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I, I must be very intelligent because I've made a, I made a ton of ex- uh, mistakes. In fact, that's actually been, if I think about it, that's kind of been my modus operandi. I'm like, I'm not afraid to make mistakes. I'm like right. willing to go out there and, you know... I don't recommend it to other mm-hmm. people because there's a consequence, a price to be paid for that. But mm-hmm. I, on the flip side, I am—I I like being me, and I like who I am, and, I'm, yeah. you know, and I, I can only be who I am through having made the mistakes you that I made. And it's been my personal experience. I can't speak for you, but um, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get there. But when you get our age, you should be at a place where you like being you. You're okay. You know, you made the mistakes, but all those mistakes have made you, you. Right. You know, and uh, it's a good place when you're okay with yourself. Now, the thing is that you do reach a point, a barrier, though, where... um uh, where the personality temperament of the other person you're involved with and are in, uh, interacting with, um, there is a there is a uh, a limit uh, to what that person and yourself. You know, we all have a limit of how far we can go in being empathetic, understanding, and sensitive and caring to the to the other person's point of view. Absolutely. And so there there is a uh, you know having um, an understanding of what makes the other person tick is essential to good communication. But on the other hand, you're not going to change your personality type and they're not going to change theirs either. Right. And so we have to learn to accept the differences mm-hmm. that exist. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful to know what those differences are. Right, right. And, and you know, I, 
I've been married for 31 years, and, um, you know, this is the thing that I've learned after 31 years, is, uh, you know, Hollywood and our society sells us this myth about love, you know, how it's, uh, you know, it's all about emotion, and it's all about, you know, fascination and infatuation and this kind of stuff. But the reality of it is, is after a certain amount of time, love is not an emotion, it's a decision. And, uh, you know, whenever you are living with someone, you definitely find the ups and the downs. And everyone has their limits on how much that they can put up with. And that's where the decision comes in. Are you going to stay with this person, or are you going to leave this person? And uh, I don't know why I'm even saying this, but it, that's been my experience. And I see a lot of people, I have family members that have made these huge mistakes thinking that they're in love, and then the love wears, the, the emotion wears off, and then they're off to someone else. Well, my father used to say that you don't fall in love by accident. You fall in love because you spend time with somebody. That's right, yeah. And, you know, in the old world, in some parts of the world still today, like India, uh, mm -hmm. people are paired up uh, by their parents or, right. you know, for, for various reasons. And, you know, the, the third-party objector, the parent, whoever it is, is doing the, uh, what do you call that, love-making or love matching. Uh, matchmaking. Matchmaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the love-making doesn't come into it right away. <laughs> So that, that, Especially so, if the parents are involved. Yeah, you know, right. Till there's a ceremony. Right. You know, yeah. So when you have matchmaking, there's no lovemaking. Right. So it didn't. It only after you spend time with that person, you know. And in the old world, that made sense because you know you had to work a farm or whatever, and so yeah. you had a, a uh, task at hand. You had to raise children. You had to take care of the farm. You know. Right. And so in the course of time, you know, the husband and wife would would grow an affection for each other. And and really the the the. Reproduction and the and the producing of children was not a romantic idea like what we have in the West. Uh, it was a matter of life and death. Right. The more children you could produce, the more farmhands you had, so the more food you could create, and the more you could have to eat during the winter, and the more you could have to sell during the harvest time. Yeah, and of course, back then, with not having clean water, and you know, there wasn't modern medicine, and so you had a high infant mortality rate, right. and so all of these things could affect your progeny uh, and your own survival. Right. So you know, you you didn't have a retirement system. You needed your children to take care of you when you get old. All of these things were. Uh, the way it was until recently. I mean, things have only, it's only been in our modern world today that we're, we're so familiar with the way things are that, uh, that these, these conditions have changed. Yeah. The, the old conditions that you're talking about, I have to get a little jab in there, Mark. Um, you know, that sounds pretty libertarian to me. What? Uh, the idea of not having to, uh, not having to worry about a government to back you up and having to only rely on your children and, that sounds really libertarian. Are you to accusing me. me of being? Are you accusing me of being what I am? I mean, why would? Yeah, you, I suppose I am. Why? Why would you accuse me of seeing the world the way it really is? Oh yes, yes, and I see the world the way it could be, and here we go again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we live in the, the modern world. The things have changed in the way we've described it, and that allows for people like you. Uh -huh. To have your uh, idealistic views. And if it wasn't for me having my idealistic views, we wouldn't have a uh, social support system. We wouldn't have yeah. a lower infant mortality rate. We wouldn't have um, 
is an excuse in this country for Social Security. It w if it wasn't for my idealistic views, we'd yeah. all still be living on a farm, and only our children would be there to take care of us. So. Well, you know, uh, I grant you the fact that there have been social reformers, even mm -hmm. democratic socialists and slash mm -hmm. communists that have mm -hmm. contributed to the 40-hour work week, etc. I, I don't deny that, yeah. okay? So okay. I'm not your typical libertarian, oh, okay? okay? But okay. Um, Now we're so finding common ground here. You can go ahead and accuse me of, of, of all you want to because all I am really, I'm a realist, okay? Uh -huh. And I look at history and I, and I don't deny that there has been contributions from the left, okay? I don't uh -huh. deny that. Uh -huh. and I I don't, and I don't deny that there's that they're necessary. Um, it, and I just regret that they are. And so, I, being being conservative, I wish I could go back in time and live in the past. You well, know, but and, and really, I regret that they're necessary too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like um, as a socialist, I, I I want you know everybody to get everything for free, and I want the state to step in and just you know. Uh, hand us the toilet paper when we're going to the bathroom. I, I regret that they're necessary as well, but they are necessary. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get around that argument, um, even as a libertarian. I could take this point of view of the typical libertarian and be anti-status and say that you know anybody who's that the state is like the, the ultimate evil and that we could do without it and blah blah blah. But that was true in one period of human history. I don't think it's true now. So this is a democracy without some sort of republic to use the language that we talked about a few podcasts ago, right. a democratic republic. Y you know, government fulfills a role. Regardless if you think that it should be small or big, it does fulfill a role. And uh, uh, it has for millennia. Yay! I think Edward Snowden was not a traitor to his country. I think that, uh, you know, as citizens of a free society, we have the right to know what our government is doing. And my, you know, I'm not for government overreach and let's all worship the state. Uh, again, as a socialist, I've said it once, I'll say it until y'all get sick of hearing me, socialism is not about state control. Socialism is about the workers controlling the means of production. That's true socialism. And uh, But uh, as an American, I think that we have a right to know what our government is doing. I'm not willing to sacrifice my rights uh, for the sake of some excuse to for a bunch of people to stick their nose into my business. Now, I sound like a libertarian saying that, you know? Yeah, we, we do cross back and forth, it seems, you know, and it's like, this is the beauty of being able to have a conversation between mm -hmm. left and right, is mm -hmm. that, you know, you, what, you, um, what you find is that uh, you'll surprise yourself and agree with the other person, and you'll actually make their argument for them. And so... <laughs> And, yeah. and, and and that goes both ways, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it certainly does. <clears throat> it so certainly does. it's only the superstructure of our political system that wants to enforce these rigid right and left paradigms and try to put people in conflict and therefore, you know... Absolutely. Because it's the... I keep coming back to this Hegelian dialectic. They, you know, it's it's. I, I made the mention of the fish being in the fish tank and they're all evenly distributed, right? Mm -hmm. But what I neglected to... to to do is to draw the conclusion, which is that if you um, if you only have two parties, then everybody lines up and it's 50-50. Have you ever noticed that even though you might have a candidate for president who's really unpopular, if the vote is always still pretty close? 
It is, that's right. It so, is, isn't it? Yeah. So I think that's a rule of nature that people in a uh, are going to that there's going to if you only have two choices, then you're going to get very close to fifty fifty on any uh, whenever there's a uh, like is it Coke or Pepsi? No one's right. no one's asking is it Doctor is Doctor Pepper good or Mountain Dew? Right. They're asking about Coke and Pepsi. So right. so you only have to choose between Coke and Pepsi, and it's going to be a fifty one forty nine percent you know vote. Exactly. And, and that's not, again, like what we've said in the past, that's not real democracy. No, that, if, we, if, if you want real democracy, then you have a, the, you, Dr. Pepper and R.C. and the rest of them. But right. now the problem is that you have too many choices and people get, uh, you know, discombobulated. Well, you know, and that's, that is certainly true. But if you look at the Western European democracies, and if you look at uh, even the, the government in Israel and these, these parliamentary democracies, they, there are many choices, but mm -hmm. they still manage to form a coalition mm -hmm. to put a prime minister in office. Right. So the whole thing is there's a, um, uh, a rules of parliamentary procedure. And if you, if, I don't know if you've ever read you know, uh, Roger's book of parliamentary procedure. Uh, yeah. Okay. Boy. So... It terribly boring, but yeah. very necessary to human government. Mm -hmm. And so, the it's a science, really, when you think about how do you handle conflict. Because there's really two ways: we can either use our words and come to a conclusion rationally, or we can fight and kill each other. Right. And so, those are really the only two options. So, yep. what what it what it comes down to then um, is, you know, they they've done some studies that see that women tend to be more, you know. Um, uh, hateful towards each other, but men tend to be more kind of like um, uh, rational. And, and, and now I know I'm going to get hate for that. But <laughs> oh, and his email address is yeah. No, go ahead. But but the re I think that the reason is because men know that they can always fall back to being brutal and violent. And mm -hmm. so and and out of and out of that, there's there's a kind of a mutual respect and a willingness to to uh, to talk things through. And um, I'm not even going to. You're not going to even go there. Okay. Okay. As a leftist, I'm not even going to go no. into that one. <laughs> Maybe I'm completely wrong. Well, no. I didn't say you were wrong or no. right. I'm just. I feel know, really I'm guilty. I feel that. really terrible. <laughs> I feel. I feel so. I feel so much shame. I'm going to have to cut that out. All right. So, <laughs> but but. Forget the female. Try, I'm not going to even begin to try to understand the female psyche. Well, now but, I'll say that I'll agree with that as um, well. I have to. Say but that. what I can speak to is my own experience, and I do believe that men who, who are uh, who are strong and violent and, and virile, and and they they have they don't have to go to blows. They don't because they recognize that that that's an option. But that's not where they don't want to go there, and it's not necessary right. to go there. Sure. So, so there's an impetus and a motivation to, to use their words and to come to resolution to negotiate. And so, there's a formal process that's been developed, and that is the uh, rules of parliamentary procedure. And where I was going with this mm -hmm. is that um, if you step outside of the uh, political system that we have, which is the bipolar disorder of the Republicans <laughs> and Democrats, Tweetism. okay, Tweetism. and all of it, all of the problems that we could identify, then we look at other models, and they work effectively to create coalitions. And, and so there's parties that might be considered liberal, but after an election, they might turn conservative. And so you have a dynamic system. Uh, Canada might be one example of and, that. And they, these models have been working for hundreds of years. So, uh, you know, it, it, you know, let me just uh, take this uh, chance to ask you, Mark, what do you think about the Electoral College? Well, I think that it was uh, it, 
there was a reason for it, and the fact was that you had some states with higher populations. They didn't want them to be mis- overrepresented. They wanted the states that had smaller populations to be equally represented. It was necessary in the political time and the framework of which it was created to create a uh, a balance and a, uh, to be, to make people feel like they were that they were. It was necessary. Let me just say, and mm-hmm. part of the whole reason for it was because the the what was driving it was this idea that there would be a um, a republic where you don't there's a safeguard against democracy and what I mob rule and that's what I've talked about before and this was a fear of the founding fathers they didn't want things to get out of control uh, because the majority wanted to do something they wanted to be able to tie the majority down the mischief of the of the majority to, to be tied down to tyranny rule. of the majority I think yeah to avoid the tyranny of the of the majority and mm-hmm. so that was part of it the other part of it was a political a practical political problem that they had with different states that had different populations and what have you but the whole idea was to have a representative government so now the question is is we look uh, at our world today, do we have a representative government? And I don't think that the the, uh, the electoral college is the problem. Now, you can say that it is a problem, and mm-hmm. I might even agree with you that it is a problem, and uh, maybe I it is. and maybe we can find a better way. And I do believe there is a better way. Mm-hmm. I think that using um, the blockchain Bitcoin technology, uh, you can you could have a voting system where there wouldn't we could eliminate the whole black box voting and be, and wouldn't have to there would be some uh, accountability, some way to audit the vote and everybody could vote. And so that technology does exist. Um, now it's a whole other question as to whether you can implement that system. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm saying that it is true that we can move beyond uh, the old way of doing things that because the Electoral College was a product of the previous century. So we can go into a new era and we can find a better technological way of achieving the result we all want. Mm-hmm. And the question is, uh, you know, is it technically feasible? Is it is it practically implementable? I don't know the answer to that. But what I'm saying is that in this question of the Electoral College, that's not the biggest problem we face. Okay, I can live with the Electoral College. It doesn't really bother me. Now, there was an... <laughs> well, I, I, it bothers me, but go ahead. Well... And maybe it should bother me because there has been two incidents in recent memory yes. where where we've had a, a, a turn of events that that hinged on this. See what what, what bothers me about the electoral college is that uh, it's possible for a person to be elected president and not have the majority of the people vote for him or her, and. Uh, because of just simply the way the numbers work, but that does not mean that. that that does not mean that we're not being that there's that that, that, that there's no uh, representative government as a consequence. Okay, oh, no, of course there's a representative government. So what I'm saying is that I don't think that uh, we need to uh, equate majority vote with representative government. I think you can have representative government without uh, even if it's not going to be the majority. Uh, uh, gets their way. So, well, that's where I have a little bit of an issue. I think the tyranny of the majority. We have a constitution set up for that. Uh, if the majority begins to violate, the way I've always understood that is, if the majority begins to violate the civil rights of a minority, then uh, there should be protection under the law for that. But whenever it comes to making a decision about who is going to be your leader or who is going to represent you in Congress. Um, the majority should have the say. Well, I'm not disagreeing that the should. Um, I, and because what I'm what I'm saying is that there should be more than just two choices. And I agree with that. 100%, okay, so we're yeah. agreeing on that. Mm. So the, the sticking point is, you know, 
is this electoral college the way it's created and set up? Is it is it um, is it unfair? Well, it's not unconstitutional, and I don't believe that no. it's unfair. Mm-hmm. I just think I disagree. Okay, so you, you know, and and that's again, that's a minor sticking point. I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I'm willing to uh, dispense with it. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to hold it up as like you know this is the way it should be. Hey Amen. Get um, rid of it. That's fine, but 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 it doesn't solve the problem if we haven't solved the problem of two party system, and yep. that's the real problem, is what I'm saying. I I agree with you on that. So you know we need to go back to finding ways of of building a um, consensus, and you know using parliamentary procedure, being able to uh, the par the parliamentary uh, government systems like they have in Europe, I think would be far better. Mm-hmm. Um, like in Canada, for example, and whatever. But these these this idea of parliament, a parliament versus a Congress, is worlds apart in the for the Americans because American people, the average American, doesn't distinguish these things or understand the difference. And, and trying right. to educate them and bring them up to speed is like a losing battle, it seems mm. to me. Mm. Well, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, as you were talking, uh, one thing that uh, kind of popped in my head was that it'd be kind of an interesting topic to do some research on and maybe talk about later as far as how the Electoral College promotes the idea of a two-party system. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's, again, I'm, I'm, I'm too ignorant to talk about it right now. Well, there was a third party at one time, and, uh, you know, it started out with the Whigs and the... Uh-huh. What was the Whigs and the Republicans, or it was something? No, like, no it was the, the Whigs and the Democrats. The Democrats yeah. The Democrats, so you had the Whigs and the Democrats, but at some point, it was right around the Civil War era. There was a third party that's been erased from history. You know, talking about mm-hmm. conspiracy. Mm-hmm. This this third party was called the Anti Freemason Party. Were you aware of that? No. Okay. Never heard of them. Right. So this is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it did not find its way into the consensus reality. Uh-huh. You actually, you know, this has been scrubbed from history. It's like uh-huh. it's like eugenics. I mean, uh-huh. you, you don't get taught these things in high school. Mm-hmm. You have to go to college, and they don't teach you. You have to just look, go to the college library, and teach yourself. That's right. really, I mean, that's the only way you're going to undercover this stuff. And that's what I, I did agree. when I was when I was uh, even before I was out of high school. I was doing a term paper, and I went to the John Brown University here in our small town, mm-hmm. and I went to the library to do my research, and I stumbled onto these things, and I'm like, what is this? this you know i'm starting reading i'm like reading right. about anti-freemason party i mean like i'm reading about uh, the, the eugenics movement and i'm like what is going on you and know, I, th- th- there's a great book that um i read several years ago it's been out for a while since the 90s and it's called lies my teacher told me uh-huh and it deals a lot with the things that you're talking about the idea that for instance the thing that sticks with me the most is the idea that when columbus came over and uh, and then the Europeans started coming over that this was just a wild open land that there was hardly any people in it and that we discovered America. But the reality of it is, is North America was hi- was highly populated. And when Columbus came over, he brought good old smallpox with him. Hmm. And the greatest plague in human history occurred within a hundred years of Columbus's visit to North America. And 90% of the human population died as a result of that plague. That's why North America was open and ripe for the picking for the European settlers. That's why it was. They didn't teach us that back in the 1970s and 1980s. It's fairly common knowledge now, but it was not then. So I know exactly. I agree with you. There's a lot of things out there that we're not taught, and we need to know. 
Who wrote the book uh, uh, Germs, Guns, and Steel? I think that's the name of it. I don't know. I haven't heard um, of that one. Oh, i got to turn you on to this. This is like, this is a pivotal book. Um, you know, atheists are always citing it. So it's... Mm. It, oh, uh, boy. The... Um, and and uh, I pay attention to what atheists say. I'm like, you know, I, I really do. I'm like, they're, they're smart people. And sure. I like to be uh, challenged in my views. Mm-hmm. So, sure. um, so, but in this book, he identifies that when the Europeans came to South America and, and North America and they brought with them the germs, as you said, uh-huh. this is why they uh, were able to um, uh, conquer is because uh-huh. the Anglos had been living in close proximity to house to in uh, barnyard animals. So that you had you mm-hmm. had chickens and you had pigs and you had you know various other unclean animals and you're living right. in unclean conditions. And so there are, the Europeans had already experienced the Black Plague in Europe and all that. Right. So they had built yeah. up immunities to this yeah. and they brought with them these these germs. So sure. without consciously knowing it, they were engaged in biological warfare, you Absolutely. could argue. Yes. Uh-huh. And so th- that was a consequence, as you say. That's why the, the, the white people uh, were dominating and superior. And why Anglo-Americans, uh, I call Anglo-Americans because it's the European uh, Caucasians and the American Caucasians. This is mm-hmm. what I call the Anglo-American establishment has r- risen to the top. And it's not because they have, that they invented banking. That's, that's how they maintain power. But how did they get to the top of the heap is the question. And he answers that question by saying it's those three things. It's they had steel, they could make swords, they right. had guns, and they had germs. Absolutely. So, so that gave them a definite advantage. So you could walk, they could walk in, there could, you know, uh, Montezuma, I don't know how many thousands of, of, uh, of, of Native Americans and indigenous people were wiped out mm-hmm. by, what, six or seven Spaniards. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't because of their gun and steel either. It was, it the, was germs. the germs. Right. And, and case in point, if, if you want to disagree with that argument, all you have to do is look at the continent of Africa. And um, Europeans colonized Africa. However, the population of Africa was immune to the European germs, just like the Europeans were. The Europeans came in with um, steel and with guns and with the better military technology. But if you look at Africa today, um, it's no longer, it hasn't been, it, it has not, it does not follow the history of North America. Uh, it's it's run by Africans. They might have been colonized for a few hundred years, but now they the population is has not been uh, demolished, and the population has not been replaced by Europeans like it has in North America. No, Germs. but what that might be true. But let's talk about colonization for a minute. Sure. I mean, what what does it mean to be colonized? I mean. Um, I'm going to give you the example that I always like to cite, even though we're running late on time. But I'm just yeah. going to throw this out. Um, when the, the in in Israel, when the Palestinians were given the ability to police their own people, what happened was the, uh, the they they chose among their own people uh, policemen. And okay, you're now a policeman. I'm going to give you a uniform, and you're a policeman. Uh-huh. And your job is to police the your fellow. Um, uh, citizens, or you know, this is these are Palestinians. Okay, mm-hmm. so what happened was the 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 Palestinians who put on the police uniform were the same Palestinians that had been tortured by the Israeli police. Uh huh. And and so once they put on that uniform, what mm-hmm. did they do? They uh, they started grabbing people off the street and torturing them. Ah. Uh, and their own people. Right. Yep. And because they were conditioned to, by this habit energy, I call it, to to repeat the same pattern. This is what they thought a policeman did. When you put on right. the uniform, this is the way you're supposed to behave. Right. Okay. Right. And so this is the problem with colonization is that you you are you are being abused. Um, what's the word? You're being um, 
you're under the hand of the slave master, essentially. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, there's this, there's this a foreign uh, alien uh, uh, culture that is invading you, and they have the power, and you have no power. And so you're behind bars, and they're the ones that are walking around free. So you look at them with envy, and you think, I want to be like that. You know what I mean? I want to be free. I want to be on the other side of the bar. I want all the fruits that society has to offer. I want the benefits of the system. Uh And how am I going to get there? Well, I'm going to have to wear a tie like that guy. Uh So you see Indians in India walking around with European-style clothing. What the hell? Yeah, exactly. That's called colonization. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, And so... Um, so you talk about Africa. Africa, there's still the colonization going uh, that's been affected, and perhaps not as much, but but it affects the mentality. And right. so what happens is the hierarchical structure, the people who rise to the top, are the ones who think that way. Right. And so then you get uh, tin pot dictators. Then right. then you you get strongmen, mm-hmm. I and mean, mm-hmm. Africa's full of this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, unfortunately, it's a Democracy hasn't really uh, had any great representation, it seems to me. What you have is these um, military leaders that become juntas, or whatever term you want to use, that would have, you know, basically it's like the, uh, uh, you know, to use an analogy, it's kind of like the Muammar Gaddafi of Africa. You know uh-huh. what I mean? You have uh-huh. guys walking around wearing a military uniform with all their badges, and you know what I mean? And, right. And they, right. and they knock heads, believe me. Right. And, and here, here's a, another thing to think about. In Africa, this is true in Africa. This is also true in the Middle East and in uh, certain parts of Southeast Asia. The, the boundaries between the states in Africa and in the Middle East are artificial. They were imposed by the colonists, or by the colonial powers, to keep the population under control. And since those boundaries are artificial, those governments that exist in those nations are also artificial. And the only way that these governments can exist is by the, uh, like what you said, the tin-pot dictator and by the strongman. Because the, the people within those nations, they don't think of themselves... As, they have uh, different cultural groups. Yeah, they, they don't yeah. think of themselves as South African. They don't think of themselves as uh, Zimbabwean. Right. They, they don't think of themselves as Algerian. Right. Uh, there's there's a multiple co- uh, different cultural groups, and uh, what you're talking about is the the Anglo uh, Anglo. Uh, what is the right word to use? It's divide and conquer. That's the strategy. Yes. So the way that the uh, the way that um, the British uh, were able to uh, and the French. Don't forget the French. They did the same. Well, the, I was going to say that the British, there's a famous statement that says the sun never goes down the British Empire. Mm, yeah. And so the way that they were able to run a world empire was through this method that you're describing, which is part of the colonization thing that we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. So you pit one group against another, and you mm-hmm. divide uh, the, the, the country along ethnic lines so that there's a uh, us versus them going on. Right. And, and the thing about it is, is you know, it says that you will reap what you've sown. And if you believe in karma, what goes around comes around. And this foolishness that was done back in the early uh, 20th century and late uh, 19th century, uh, we are now reaping uh, in the nation of Iraq, which is a completely artificial nation. Uh, Iraq actually consists of three nations, the Kurdish in the north, the Sunnis in the, in the middle part of the country, and the Shiites in the south. None. Those three groups do not get along. They do not want to exist. And now we've had war since we got rid of the strong man 
Saddam Hussein that kept them all together. We put him in power, by we the way. We put him in power, by the way, exactly. And now we are reaping what we've sown. So what the British did years ago? What the British did, what the the formula that they came up with for empire is the same formula that the Americans followed. We inherited it from them. They taught us their little uh, spycraft, and we followed it right down the letter. And we even added to it. We improved on it. Um, it's kind of like taking torture and and finding ways to be more effective in your torture. And and right. we've done that too. Let's let's yeah. let's not kid ourselves. I mean, you know, they try to do all kinds of experiments, that MK Ultra experiments and, and that were going on in Harvard, try to figure out how to do mind control and tried mm -hmm. various techniques, trying LSD and various things, uh -huh. to, you know, finding what would work, to, you know, truth serum and this and that. And what they found was that there were five ways to create torture and uh, to, to get extract information. And the first thing is sensory deprivation, right? You put a hood over somebody's head and you, right. and you, okay, what do you see in, in Afghanistan and Iraq when they grab people? They would put the hood over their head. Yeah. Sensory deprivation. That's the first step in torture. We've perfected the, the method. We, we, over a period of 20 years, we learned what worked and mm. we started using it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're not some innocent, like, you know, babes in the woods here. Yeah. We know that there is a systematic method of torture that has been developed over the years and Americans are implementing it and they're doing it in a place called Guantanamo Bay. The Supreme right. Court said that place needs to be shut down. We had a president who was elected, Obama, who said he was going to shut it down. Eight years later, was it shut down? No. no. Okay. So we have a problem. And now we have a president that says he wants to keep it forever. So Wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I Great. mean, another one of the things that they discovered when they were doing the, uh, uh, trying to figure out a way to extract information was what they call self-inflicted pain. And self-inflicted pain is where you, somebody has to squat in the corner and, or they have to stand on a box with their arms out. And eventually that becomes painful. And so, but it messes with your head because you're inflicting the pain, not somebody else. Huh. And so that's part of the way they break you down. They've learned that this is a very effective way to break you down psychologically. So self-inflicted mm. self pain is a part of that. And then what they also added uh, recently, just before 9-11 uh, and, and the launching into the Afghanistan and Iraq war, was they added another component that they found to be effective, and that is called cultural attack. Okay, cultural sensitivity attack or cultural sensitivity undermining or whatever term you want to use. Mm -hmm. And that involved finding out, okay, in this case, they're dealing with Muslims, okay? And the right. Muslims are, you know, in their culture, it's like uh, obscene for men to engage in sex acts with one another publicly or whatever. Right. Um, they do it privately, of course, but <laughs> but but it's still a shameful thing. So, right. so sure. they would simulate sex acts. They would strip the men naked, make them lay on top of each other. Yeah. That yeah. was a form of torture. It was uh, an Abu Ghraib, right? Abu Ghraib. Mm -hmm. And then they would bring in barking dogs because that was a cultural sensitivity issue uh -huh. they, and, and so they'd make and then women exposing their breasts to them or, or taking their hand and making them touch their breasts uh -huh. that was another uh, 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 way to break them down psychologically and uh -huh. this is what they were doing Right. And are doing even yeah. now, and yeah. then other things they would do is like take the Quran and paint it, out, paint it on the floor and urinate on it in front of yeah. them. This was cultural attack. Mm -hmm. uh, they would put a pentagram on the floor and say, "Oh, you're a Satan worshiper," and blah blah blah. Uh -huh. So. Americans don't realize or they don't want to know because the information is out there. If they wanted to know, they could know, they could learn these things. But this is the kind of behavior that our government is doing in our name for this for in the name of liberty and freedom and democracy. Right, right. Yeah, let's let's spread liberty and freedom by the gun. Uh, Napoleon by tried, torture. Yeah, by torture. And, and, and Napoleon tried that in the early 1800s. Didn't work for him. It's not going to work for us. There's, I mean, you know, the fish rots from the head down. And if we allow, and we are allowing, we have now for some time. This has been going on since 9/11, 2001. Okay, this has been going on. You know, waterboarding. We debate about whether oh, it's effective or not. What an asinine statement. What an asinine argument. Right. I mean, right. it's immoral. At the same time, they're doing it. Uh, 
do you have the Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice coming out saying, "Oh, America doesn't torture. America doesn't torture." Bold face lie. Right. Sure. Okay, and the American people want to live in denial and say that America doesn't torture. Even to this day, people will still say that. And if you confront them with the fact that waterboarding is immoral, torture is immoral, they'll have to back down and admit that it is. But they want to live in denial. They don't want to be confronted with that. Well, we all want to live in our happy little space. And Americans, that's what we, that's what we want to do. As, a, as we're sitting here talking, we need to end this thing, but... As we're sitting here talking, I'm sitting here looking at Main Street, small town America, and it's just about as picturesque as it can be. It's just a beautiful place, and it's nice to have a little spot where you don't have to worry about what's really going on in the world. You can just enjoy your little happy place, and, uh, you know, that's not being a good American, in my opinion. It's not being a good person and a good human, in my opinion. There, there's a lot of suffering in this world, and our government is doing a lot of the causing of that suffering. And as citizens of a free country, we're responsible to make a change. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. I'll just say that uh, um, that was an interesting discussion. Yeah, it went and all over the place, we, didn't it? We went somewhere I wasn't expecting to go. But that's the, <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the fun of this. This is the fun of it. You know, the passions come out. You know, I, I think that uh, there's still a lot of subjects I think we can cover. Uh, I certainly want to talk about economic systems, want to talk about politics, want to talk about religion, philosophy. We've got a lot of things we can cover, and I'm kind of looking forward to that. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be Thank back you. with another episode of Dimwits. Two Dimwits. Wait See. a minute. Which one are you? <laughs> oh, you're the useful dimwit. No, I'm the not, no, no. Yeah, the useful dimwit. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, no, no, that's the Republicans. I wait think a that's, minute. That's the uh, no, that's the no, that's the communists. The no, useful that's the dim- Christians are no. The, yeah, the Christians are. the Would you useful get your dimwit straight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all be careful. Good night. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.